Hi. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am pretty good. I slept in and as you know, um, I thought that this call was at 10 my time and briefly freaked out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm glad that that was just my, um, I, I'm glad that I screwed up in a way that was uh, beneficial to me uh, rather than a way that was, um, uh, you know, let, the, let you down and let me down and, and let just let everyone down because I'm not about that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's um, it is ten something Pacific time, which is where you are, and mm-hmm. you are in California, correct? Yes. Uh, and I understand that you are in uh, or at UCSF. Yes, that's super cool. Uh, I don't know if we've talked about this on Twitter, but I was once a sociologist. Mm-hmm. You did tell me that. Yeah, yeah. And so you are, um, are you ABD now or are you um, oh, God, still? No. Oh, no. Oh, no. You have to do exams. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. for. So <laughs> I just, so we have an interesting setup in our program. We take our quals after year one and year two. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. So I'm only in my first year. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know. Oh, I dropped out of grad school before I would have had to take my exams. And it's not because I didn't want to do that, although that isn't not part of it. I guess for people who aren't aware of that whole system, what does that look like? You basically take like a comprehensive multiple day exam where you're basically writing up your um, knowledge of like a field. Yeah. So in my program, I actually like the way that we're doing it. Um, We have exams about the specific theory classes that we took. So I have a class about the sociology of health and medicine, one about the social psychology of health and illness, and then a health policy exam. So as much as overwhelming as it kind of is, it's, it's very pointed and it's very specific and they're very clear about what kinds of things are going to be tested about. So it's stressful, but it's not like I have to know literally everything and it's really overwhelming to try and learn everything. Yeah, no, that's good. They're kind of more targeted. That that makes sense yeah. to me because also like this is a super broad field and by yeah. nature you have to specialize and to expect someone to note just the sociology of health. All of it is like... Mm-hmm. That's too much. <laughs> well, we have a very specific theoretical lens. Mm. And so like we're really focused on like symbolic actual interactionism um, and post-structuralism. So they want us, they're very, they teach it very specifically through that lens, which right. I also really appreciate. So it's, it takes the guesswork out of a lot of, a lot of things. Right, right. That's awesome. Um, So Symbolic interactionism. Who are we talking about? Like um, my man Goffman, Irving Goffman. Yeah. That, yeah. Oh God. Love that guy. Um, yes. I think he was Canadian too. I might have made that up. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, we have to take who we can get. Um, but so you, so it's coming from. Okay, so I guess I for again for for people who aren't privy to like the ins and outs of American sociology, my, um, my sense of things is that it's so regional and weird because you have these schools in California that are really heavily influenced by uh, left-leaning strains of, of academic thought or by, mm-hmm. um, by qualitative work that is about working in concert to some degree with the people that you're studying or, or listening to them. Um, and then you have things like the Chicago school, which is very different. And then you have things like the program that I was in, which was um, very, very <laughs> the different. Besides <size>. <laughs> everything I need to know. I, well, <laughs> I went to a school that was one of the birthplaces of rational choice theory in sociology, which is um, horrible. <laughs> I, yeah. I feel like because it's very much like this neoclassical economic view of of people as as actors um but it sounds like maybe UCSF is like a good place where people are are um are coming from this perspective of like understanding symbols and motivations and things in a way that isn't so kind of kind of cold and and uh and inhuman yeah my program is amazing it's 
it's very left. So when I learned health policy, I have, you know, an old Marxist professor as my health policy teacher. And when we're learning about the formation of Medicare, Medicaid, um, he was like, it's really important to ensure that we understand this coming out of the New Deal and the Mm. way that the New Deal undermined the power of unions by linking healthcare access to the workplace as opposed mm-hmm. to something that is a broad. And I was like, yes, I have never <laughs> learned it like that. That's super important. And he's like, if you look at Europe and compare Europe to the United States, like you can look at the formation of nation states and that formation, that like state formation is reflected in, in the way that the healthcare system evolves. So like look at France and after the French revolution, arguably who is supposed to be able to be a citizen? Everyone, mm-hmm. right? In the United States, how was citizenship codified? Through being a white man, that was a property owner. Mm-hmm. And like health resources were enclosed thusly. And I was like, we need more of this. And we read a lot about <laughs> um, Vincent, uh, I think Navarro, who was Allende's, um, health, one of Allende's healthcare advisors. And uh-huh. he's very much like, we have to understand sickness and the medical system through this broader understanding of class conflict and class struggle. So that was how I learned health policy wow. and how I learned about the formation of the medical system. That's amazing. That sounds like a, a super cool program. The professors are really, 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 really great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, God, I just, I know, um, and not just my experience, but um, from other people I know who are really passionate, um, like activists or are working in concert with activists who are in the social sciences, they've had, they've run up against things where maybe not in their own departments, but when they get out into the professional sphere of sociology, um, it can be a really oddly conservative area. And I think a lot of people outside of academia don't realize that, but because of the structure of grants and the structure of what kind of work gets rewarded, um, anyone who wants to do any kind of like work that it pushes any of those boundaries, it's, it's really difficult. Have you like, but it sounds like you're getting support from your department, which is, is great. Yes. But my, so the school, UCSF is an interesting institution because it is a post-grad only institution. Mm. And so we, there's just, there's a, there's a ton of money that goes into it for research, but there is slightly less funding opportunity institutionally for us because we can't get like TA ships. Yeah. Um, and so I'm getting a little bit nervous because I'm looking at the funding cuts in the new administration Um, and the way that they're gutting a lot of the funding for research that has to do with LGBTQ health, with prevention, um, with population health, with marginalized communities. And I'm getting a little bit antsy about the availability for that when it comes time for me to apply for like dissertation money. Um, but it's, it's interesting because my program at my school is kind of a bubble, right? Like we do social and behavioral health the rest of the institution is like very hard biomedicine um, and clinical practice. And so I've had a lot of conversations with med students and nursing students being like, oh, you're a sociology student. Why are you here? What's the point of medical sociology? And I'm just like, well, to help you do your jobs because you don't do your jobs super well often. Woof. Oh my God. Yeah. It's wild. (laughs) It's pretty wild. It is. And, um, God, that is, that's rough too. Like, um, and I think that's where a lot of sociology's weird issues come from is like this sort of like kid brother syndrome of, um, of feeling like, just like not like this imposter, this discipline wide imposter syndrome because people doing, saying things like that of like, what is your job even? Or like, what, what are you doing? Mm. Um, and as a result, I think that the way that some, sociologists and maybe the discipline as a whole in the U.S. have responded to that is by saying, we are too science. We are too, we do too have numbers and graphs and totally. and correlation matrices and things, regression analyses that if you step back don't actually mean anything, but we have p-values, damn it. Um, yeah. And then there's so much time spent trying to justify the usefulness of qualitative research. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God. Yes. I just took a qualitative ethics class um, like a preparation to help us put together IRBs, blah, blah, blah. And we were assigned so many articles about like 
how we can make our work more rigorous and try to be objective mm-hmm. and da 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 da. And I was like, I am not trying to be objective because my focus is trans health, right? So by virtue of trying to make an insurgent community's knowledge, like I'm trying to make a community's insurgent knowledge, I'm trying to assert that as being expert knowledge. That in itself can never be objective. Mm-hmm. Because who gets to be objective? Certainly not trans people. Certainly not me as a black woman. Even if I do decide that like biomedicine is totally right and I should be an agent <laughs> of, of that. Um, and I'm just like, we need to stop trying to convince everyone that our work is useful and valid because I think that's going to make people take us even less seriously. Like the quality of the work will speak for itself. Right. And that that is something that was really frustrating to me when when I was um, in grad school was if you do certain kinds of work, you have to accept that a certain percentage of your time and energy is going to be spent defending why your work is valuable. And, totally. and you don't have to do that if you are a, um, a deep sociological theorist doing work that is relevant only to other soci- sociological theorists. You don't have to do mm. it if you are doing like bizarre, like really arcane statistical research on like really minute changes um, mm-hmm. because the money that you're getting justifies that work um, or often the fact that you are like not a marginalized person justifies the fact that you're doing that work. But yeah, I guess like unless you are like, I was going to say unless you're Alice Goffman, but even Alice Goffman, like, Ooh. although... <laughs> I, I, I sort of lost track of that story like a year ago um that is a whole another set of issues but like like that's there, what people point to as yeah the flaw of sociological work right right it's like even sociologists who are like serious about doing ethnography are going to talk about the ways that alice goffman was doing things that were just not on right yeah um god it's like I mean, yeah, like one in, I mean, I'm sure even like Sudhir Venkatesh has to like, had to defend himself like all the time and probably still does to some extent. Um, mm-hmm. Well, he's probably doing fine now, but, um, but yeah, man, it's, um, it's a rough gig. Um, but it sounds like, I mean, yeah, I, it's, it's hard, like trying to change this whole discipline. And so what some people I know have done is just basically said like, okay, well, I'm going to use the resources that I have and like get a degree and like use the support networks and things that I have. And then either they um, find work in departments that are sort of more interdisciplinary and more about Mm -hmm. uh, subjects than about this like specific theoretical background, Mm -hmm. um, or they find other ways to make it work. And like, I know a lot of people who have done, like found super cool jobs and like, um, like it on the one hand it's like really hard and sucks and on the other hand i think there are all these avenues opening up that make it um less necessary than ever for people to have these like strong allegiances to like their discipline or whatever totally totally agree and yeah i'm going to try to figure out a, a place that works i guess by the time i finish and then there's the other concern about trying to stay in the academy when there's so much less oh my god yeah security than there used to be with the way that tenure is getting gutted with the way that women of color i think are very frequently denied the tenure that they deserve and in terms mm-hmm. of have like worked towards and are fully qualified um for and and the way that people get censured and the ways that people get silenced by their institutions for radical politics. I'm just thinking like, what are my prospects even for tenure? Is that something I want to even try to do? Right. Uh, So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And like, what is, what is the landscape going to look like in five years when I'm done Mm -hmm. with, with the way that the the federal government is doing all of the shenanigans that they're doing right now with higher education. That is just the most euphemistic way I've ever heard that. Yeah, um, yeah. PG. <laughs> <laughs> please, please. There is, um, yeah. No, you can go as as R as NC seventeen as you want on this show. Um, but so you, I, um, I was, I was looking at your your website because i 
because I followed you for a while and I sort of know like some of your research interests and like some of the stuff that you're working on. Um, but the list of things that you're talking about on your site is like super, super cool. And I wanted to like ask you about them because yeah. like you talk about, okay, so uh, you're into uh, critical philosophy of race and critical race slash post-colonial theory, uh, social determinants of health and social epidemiology, which I guess we sort of have talked about. Um, disposability on its own, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, gender, sex work, and HIV disparities and discourses. So I guess, first of all, what do you mean by disposability? I think I maybe have an idea, but... Yeah, I'm... This isn't something that I've gone into too much um, yet, but I'm really kind of interested in... As opposed to biopolitics, necropolitics and thanatopolitics and mm. looking at these kinds of structural valuations of human life, of understanding. I mean, okay, p perfect example. If we look at the LGBTQ movement and we look at the ways in which when HIV became, not became a thing, like when the HIV epidemic began mm -hmm. and um, it, be, it was this it was understood as this gay disease. It's still kind of understood as this gay disease, but you know, we saw the ways that white cis gay men were trying to make their access and prevention politic respectable in a particular way that excluded the needs of queer black men, of black trans women, um, a generation of which was also completely wiped out by the epidemic. And we continue to see in order to make gains, um, we see that marriage equality is pushed to the fore and housing needs, um, which are overwhelmingly felt by queer and trans folks of color, um, are less important. And that after marriage equality happened, the amount of funding that a lot of these big LGBT NGOs got dropped because <laughs> the biggest priority was accomplished, was achieved. Um, I'm just really interested in the ways that we can we understand some lives to be worth particular amounts and other lives to be worth particular amounts and the ways that social systems and health systems are constructed to serve the needs of certain communities and to necessarily, I don't know if I'm going to say harm, but to, to, to not account for the needs of others. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, like that just I am so I'm reading actually Sarah Shulman's memoir, uh, The Gentrification of the Mind right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with that. It sounds familiar, but what's it about? Uh it's basically about her like her the time in her life when she lived during the plague era um in New York City and just mm -hmm. was a part of Act Up and basically saw like so many of her friends die. Um, but then she also ties it to um, I mean, it's, it's a book about HIV, but it's also a book about, um, about gentrification and about how, um, so many people, like so many, like queer people, many of whom were artists and poor, like dying, um, basically released all of those apartments into market rates because their partners were prevented from taking on the leases. Um, Ooh. and so there's this, like, kind of coincidental but like horrible nexus of hiv and gentrification um in new york and i also am, i guess i'm yeah i'm thinking about um because she talks too about how um now like there is sort of the sense of of um past aids and like ongoing aids and past aids is like quote something that happened here and like ongoing aids is like something that happens like out there in the world um which to me seems like totally what you're talking about, like necropolitics. Um, and I don't know if like, um, who was it that that, came, that coined that? Was it um, um, Jasmine Bembe, Barr? Bembe, Bembe. Yeah, I, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, and like, I don't know if if he or like Jasmine Barr talk about this kind of stuff, but like that is totally necropolitics, right? Of like this this like weird ways of thinking about, and also this is one of your research interests too, I guess. So you probably like have thought about this a lot already, but like the ways we talk about and think about HIV. Um, mm. historically, there is a good and, book mm -hmm. by someone, by the person who was actually the director of my program for it at grad school. It was called letting them die. 
Um, it's about how and why certain HIV interventions fail and why certain other ones that are designed and structured in particular ways succeed and the ways that success gets defined. Huh. Um, and I thought that that title is particularly apt in talking about HIV because it's not about helping people to live normal lives because when we talk about new cures and new preventative methods and we talk about behavioral changes, it's not about who gets to live. It's who we continue to allow to die. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so I it's yeah. So she her focus is in South Africa because she's from South Africa. But um, yeah. And and when I look at new um, intervention designs and they're revolving around behavioral change. Um, I'm also really interested in like these ideas around biological citizenship and about mm. behavior change and coercion and about how you having the quote unquote capacity to change your behavior demonstrates your worthiness and the, your, your deservingness for life, as opposed to understanding everyone is having an inherent right to life that should be actualized and should be supported in all of these different capacities. It's simply like, and, and those things don't take into account that some people are structurally denied access to the things that would allow them to live healthy lives or live mm -hmm. lives at all. Um, yeah. And it's, I'm, 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 I'm really interested in the logics of who, I mean, it's, it's not that complicated, right? <laughs> but I'm, I'm really interested in, you know, a lot of really good work has been done around this with Hurricane Katrina and the mm -hmm, Katrina mm -hmm. response. Um, so Henry Giroux mm -hmm. wrote a really good article about disposability and Katrina and the Katrina response. Yeah, that's awesome. I will, I'll hunt that down and put that in the show notes um, if anyone wants to to take a look. Was that the Untruth Out? No, it's an article. I can send you the name of oh, it. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like an actual academic article. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, awesome. So... I guess one thing I'm curious about, and um, this maybe is like a little more personal than um, than professional, but um, <laughs> but it is on the same topic. Um, I again, like in reading Shulman's book, another big part of it is about generational differences between queers and mm. um, and also general generational absences, right? So like there being this basically huge swathe of people who should be here and aren't. Um, and, and the sort of impact that that has on younger people as well of not having always this sense of continuity. Um, and something that I've noticed and talked about a lot with, especially with uh, my friend Morgan Page, who does a really great history podcast. Oh yeah, my gosh, I love Morgan's work. <laughs> she's incredible. Um, but we've talked a lot about the ways that people around our age talk about or don't talk about HIV because it does seem a lot like for a very large portion of younger queers, and obviously this is like not totally random, right? It's like based on um, class and race and all kinds of things like that. Um, HIV is like not a reality. Um, and on the one hand, that's good, I guess. But on the other, I don't think it's, it's not, not a reality because it isn't a thing anymore, but just because people don't think of it as being something about them. Like, um, do you like, do, how do you, how do people that, you know, like talk about this stuff? So my entry point into HIV conversations is in two ways. The first one is deeply personal as, um, so my whole family is from Zimbabwe mm -hmm. and sub-Saharan Africa is continuing to be ravaged by mm -hmm. the HIV epidemic. And so I've had family members die of AIDS related illnesses and, there's still far too much stigma around around it, even though there is it is so ubiquitous. It's it, there's still it's still unsafe in some spaces and okay in other spaces to talk about it. Um, and then in the United States, oh, I'm trying to. I think my first entry into talking about HIV again was through doing prevention work with trans women. Mm-hmm. And so as a queer woman, I guess, there's a way that I can pretend that I'm not in any risk matrix for HIV. Mm -hmm. um, but because of the community that I'm interested in, in, in supporting with my academic work, it, it's kind of impossible for me to not think about it 
and then it always looking at all of these tropes and, and, and conversations around stigma, like forces me to remember my own family members who have died and forces me to remember the ways that I have confronted HIV and AIDS, like in Swaziland, um, when I, I, I worked with an organization that did breastfeeding advocacy and like, what did HIV look like when we're trying to, when, when in a country that has one of the highest prevalences of HIV and we're trying to teach people how to breastfeed when that is a mode of transmission. Mm. Um, it's always been this complicated combination of personal and biomedical or personal and NGO. Um, so it's, it's not been as much of a, queer community thing for me Mm -hmm. as it has been either through a direct confrontation in my family or in my work yeah well I mean I feel like people who have like a direct relationship with this stuff it's always going to be different um than for people who who don't um and maybe that's like an asinine thing to say but I feel like for a lot of of American queers and like, especially white and like, especially maybe, um, in more of the communities that I'm in, which are like mostly women. Um, Mm. it's not something that ever really comes up. Um, and it's, it's kind of weird. I think it's dangerous. (laughs) Absolutely. It is. And like, to me, it goes along with some other stuff too, of thinking of, of like this, this thinking about what HIV is and, and sort of like deservingness and, and bodies creeps in in really upsetting ways. Um, yeah. So like thinking about um, the criminalization of of uh, people with HIV, of just like around borders or also around like tra- like mm. transmission risk or whatever, like um, yeah. and the discourse around that. Oh my god! So uncomfortably oh. echoes. Listen, oh my god! <laughs> Don't even get me started get... when it comes to talking about transmission risk. Right. It's because you like there are so many people who. Um, this is one of those issues for me where there are people who I would expect to know better, um, who who get suddenly like extremely irrational and upset about this, in a way that is really perverse to me because it warps this language of consent that I feel like like has sort of become really um the, our, the way we talk about consent I feel like has just trickled through like feminist blogs to the mm. to like the mainstream in a way that has really like robbed it of a lot of uh nuance to the to the extent that like you can have like young like radical feminists b- being on board with criminalizing people with HIV for not yeah. disclosing yeah i mean so first, when we talk about transmission risks, I'm going to get real clinician-y, oh, please. discourse-y for a sec. So much because it revolves, it's still like, we talk about it in two ways. We talk about a HIV as being something that is like a queer thing. And then we also talk about it as being like a, a poor heterosexual thing. Mm-hmm. So we understand it in both ways as being a, a disease that is associated with like racialized poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the queer community, we talk about like black and brown queers being more at quote unquote at risk. And then we can also talk about like in the United States, we talk about like the, the, the infection rates like in the South being much higher than in other parts of the country. Um, but when we talk about risk acquisition risk it revolves quite solely around unprotected receptive anal sex Mm -hmm. because it is associated so strongly with men who have sex with men right and i have discovered in understanding trans women within this discourse that the discourse constantly misgenders trans women because because it revolves around this like biological solely this biological act of Uh sex trans women who do have penises are included in this or who participate in anal sex are, are, are included in this. And, and when interventions are then created, it's, it's like the ones that are for trans women are basically the ones that are for cis gay men, but like the pictures are changed a little bit. So instead (laughs) of having like handsome muscular men, it's like trans women, Mm -hmm. but the reasons that, queer men might be attracted to images of other handsome men are completely different than for the, than the reasons that like a heterosexual trans woman would be attracted <laughs> to a public health campaign. And so 
it's like everyone in the LGBT community is treated like a cis gay man, but then trans men who have sex with men are not included in the MSM label. But trans women, it's just, it's just a complete, it's a Oof. fucking. <laughs> it's so, it's such a mess. And too, like, I know that that label is so laden and so complex. Um, yeah. But it's MSM? like, yeah, but it's also it just was like. literally invented to describe behavior and not to describe the systems <laughs> that create race and gender. So there's a whole, there's an article that I was just reading about the problems of MSM and WSW mm-hmm. in the fact that like it is literally about sexual behavior and not actually about people's identities. Right. And like, I get where that, I get like the impulse to, to create that label because um, the idea is like, Oh, if you have, it, you, we need to like stop seeing like HIV as a gay a disease or like we need to be able to target people from a public health standpoint who don't want to come forward under these programs that are like for gay men but like also just like the weird homophobia like latent in it like doesn't seem like I don't know that it's actually been successful in like changing how we talk about this stuff um other than just sort of recloseting things and again as you say like introducing all these other weird issues mm-hmm. and and I'm and I'm reading some of the good work quote-unquote good work around trans um trans women's health or trans health. And in what big, big 2016, people are only just saying trans women are not men who have sex with men. And so we can't include them and we have to like create more. And then the buzzword again, culturally competent (laughs) intervention strategies. And it's like, no, it's not about culturally competent intervention strategies. It's about, let's talk about like housing Let's talk about the reason that quite a few trans women are going to be at a particular risk because of engagement in survival sex mm-hmm. and exchanging sex for housing. If you give people housing, if, if we started to conceptualize like housing provision as a public health intervention, do you know how many fucking things that we would take care of so fast mm-hmm. if we put housing in the center of interventions and then use that as linkage to care? I was having a conversation with a public health person about it and I, I, I dropped that into conversation and they had to like stop the conversation to like think about it. And we're just like, wow. Yeah. And I was like, what? (laughs) We live in a part of America where we see how we see houseless people constantly. And you never once thought, Hey, let's just give people housing because it's cheaper to give people housing than to criminalize people living on the street to criminalize sex workers who have to work outdoors because they don't have indoor spaces that are like, even from just like a callous financial perspective, that was novelty. Okay. Well, just got <laughs> to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, God, the, the housing thing piece is such like a, I'm seeing it talked a lot lately in sort of a different context. Um, I saw this, um, interview with an MP, uh, from England, come across Mm -hmm. my timeline and it seems to have disappeared so I can't maybe I'll be able to dig it up but and he was basically just like talking about this in um in the context of that um that fire that um destroyed a tower block Mm. um and just talking about like okay well is welfare provision about like just about education and and like healthcare in this very specific sense or is it about like having a safety net and like housing is like an, a massive part of that. And if we're not committed to that, then do these other things, like then we're failing on these other things too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's really telling that housing, that health policy revolves around like a doctor patient interaction mm. as opposed to understanding environments and the ways that different environments are able to dictate health outcomes. Like I read, there's the thing about how you can understand someone's like health risk and life expectancy by understanding their proximity to a public transportation station. Or like, I think it was made of, maybe was in New York. So their proximity to like a subway station. Um, There are so many things determined by your environment. And instead we're just focusing on people's behavior as though people aren't able to make choices based on what their environment is like. So if you don't have housing, the chances of you engaging in risky sex for, to, to make money, to get whatever you need to get, your chances of having poor mental health outcomes are so much higher. Your chances of, of 
drug use of, of, of becoming dependent on drugs are so much higher. And the fact that we don't put housing squarely as a focus for preventative health, you know, <laughs> it speaks a lot of volumes. And and also for the sake of all of these like shitty tech douchebags who keep writing letters to public officials about how they hate seeing people sleeping on the streets. Like <laughs> if you pushed for provisions for housing, you would not have to have these quote unquote eyesores everywhere. Yeah. That's yeah. like if we're just like being like it hits all of these different bases. Like if you want to go from being someone who's altruistic to being a callous piece of shit, everybody gets happy. And the people who are the ones who are actually affected and vulnerable will have somewhere to sleep. Yeah. That's not a shelter. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's basic. Um, but the way that gentrification is, is putting people at risk, not just people who are living in houses that are now desirable to developers, but people who are living, you know, like you see in the UK in government housing, that is too ugly to be looked at by the people around them and are being decorated and beautified with things that are flammable, that are barely more expensive than the non-flammable things. Like, yeah, it's, it's all just, it's horrific. And hopefully housing becomes something that is much more central as people start to admit that neoliberalism is failing. <laughs> yeah. Fingers crossed. They're only just, <laughs> yeah, which they're only just beginning to do. So hopefully in 10 years. Oh, mm-hmm. And when this housing bubble bursts, we can be like, well, we told you. <laughs> <laughs> we tried to tell you that this was going to happen because it always does. Try to warn you. Try to warn you about that housing. <laughs> I am. Um, to be a downer. <laughs> no, this is all super important and like uh, interesting and, and necessary. Um, I, um, yeah. And I feel like this is, you know, this is the stuff that, sociologists are like really poised to to take on right now because like mm -hmm. this this like social determinants of health like I mean it's always been an issue and like it's always been a really critical lens for looking at this stuff but like I feel like people are starting to become more receptive to to these kinds of ideas the problem sometimes though is when you present an understanding of social social determinants of health in kind of descriptive and qualitative language because people like evidence-based research. Mm. If you haven't done this big stuff, or if you don't happen to have a big, I mean, fortunately there's all kinds of great stuff. Like Nancy Krieger has been doing amazing work around like racially disparate health outcomes and social determinants for a long time. So like it exists. But if you present folks with this really thorough theoretical modeling of kind of neoliberal capitalist society and exclusion and saying that like, if this happens this way and housing is oriented this particular way, people are more likely to da 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 da. People don't really respond to that as well, which is really frustrating. You really, you really um, just got to slap some P values on it. Just be like, this is, it's uh, significant at a 0.05 level and they'll just all stand up and give you a standing ovation. But the funny thing is it's like a lot of folks don't, aren't even really that good with descriptive statistics no no i know they're all and terrible that's the worst part. <laughs> i can give you my p-value but they're still not going to understand what i'm saying right and, and i'm not going to understand <laughs> what i'm saying either. well most status most social statisticians don't either because they misuse that stuff in really upsetting ways but um and they all have statisticians to just interpret the data that they have and then explain it to them so they can stick it in their write-up of whatever journal that they're going to submit their findings that's to. Actually, that's something that I'm curious about. Like, what is your relationship to, I know this is a huge question, but like <laughs> ask someone who is, is like really um, engaged with the kind of work that you're doing and it, it is really work that is oriented towards outcomes and towards um, uh, changing policies or, or changing um, these structures. Like, how do you navigate that aspect of being acad in academia where like, the reward structure is so oriented Ugh. towards publishing in locked journals that yeah. very few people are able to access. Cause that's something that I had to grapple with. Um, and I think yeah. it's something that anyone who is politically engaged has to deal with. So one of the things that I was, when I published my first article, I think in like 2015, 
I was like, oh, I can do this in open access. And then I realized you have to pay for open access. And the, the, the amount of money you have to pay for open access, like if you have the money to drop it, you're probably at some kind of scholarly level where you're not invested in people like being able to read your work anymore. Um, so what I just do is I just put it on my academia page and I make it downloadable. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, um, God, there's so much weird money stuff in academia. And like, if you just follow it, it all basically goes to like, and I'm, I'm not against people getting paid or paying for, for valuable work or whatever, but all that money goes to journal publishers, um, yep. who, who then don't pay reviewers who yep. it's like, just and who a, don't pay and who, and it's like, we don't get paid to publish cause it's part right. of our job description or whatever. But yeah. then we also lose access to our work. Like I couldn't find a copy of the article that I had written for this case study and like case study series for Sage. And I couldn't find the copy that I had downloaded. I couldn't find the password to my account, my author account. So I literally did not have access to my work. And after I, I mean, I found the copy on my computer eventually, but I was just sitting there and like thinking about that. And I was like, I wrote this thing (laughs) that, I did all of this legwork and it was based on my like master's research and whatever, whatever. But like, I wrote this thing and I can't read it. Yeah, that's, yeah. And like, that felt terrible. It's not good. And I didn't have institute, I mean, even though I'm at UCSF, like I didn't have institutional access for this particular thing. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's like one of the worst feelings in the world, especially when publisher perish is my mantra as an early career academic, like get as much published as possible, uh, you know, establish yourself, you know, prepare yourself for like the potential for a tenure track on, mm-hmm. and make yourself hireable and marketable with having all these publications. But it's just like, if I don't archive these things properly, like I'm going to lose access to my own work. <laughs> yeah. God, it's just like, it's just you find these ways to just like hack around the stuff and like make it work for you, I guess. Like, yeah. um, or like, like when I was teaching the, um, there's all kinds of weird rules about copyright and like, mm. um, not just like, and, and, you know, like going and publishing, uh, or, or like reprinting journal articles in, in readers that are made by these companies that are like charging to pay for the copyright and everything. And like, I, would just scan like I would just hand scan book chapters and just put them on Dropbox for my students and hope that no that none of them narked on me because why would they? I'm saving them like two hundred dollars. But like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's like there's it feels like there's all this stuff that you have to fight against to like to do what you want to do. And um, I really admire anyone who like is able to actually come through that with their integrity intact because it is tough. Yeah. And in order to be successful, sometimes you have to figure out which battles you have mm-hmm. to pick. And sometimes a battle you have to pick is is kind of an ethically, for your, for your own self, a little bit of an ethically, or the ones that you decide not to pick, you know, you have to be a little bit, what, ethically flexible? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, which doesn't feel great all the time. Unfortunately, I haven't been in a position where I have to do that yet. Instead, I'm just opting to make a lot of enemies, which I already kind of have. <laughs> so um, I guess it's a little bit late for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, everyone has enemies in academia, like you. Sort well, of... enemies in my field. Oh, uh, well, I mean, people, I feel like that's also really common, though, is like, you're just kind of expected to, I mean, if you get along with everyone, then people are going to be like, yeah mm, what's you're not here what do you do? are you yeah. really serious about this <laughs> like you need to get in fights about something on um oh god what is that uh that website where people publish op-eds the chronicle oh god um, you need to write a chronicle piece denouncing this person if you really want to show yeah. that you're ser- that's your final exam yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it's like, there have been like two ways that I've already started picking fights. So first there was, and they've all been kind of around trans health and trans identity. So the first time was at conference. They had one in LA. And I don't know if you know Kenneth Zucker. I am um, I'm familiar with his work. Um, Kenneth Zucker, he was invited to give two symposia presentations at the mm-hmm. conference, mm-hmm. which was very confusing because all of his work is kind of a violation of the standards of care that were established by WPATH. Um, He was also invited to present at the conference in Amsterdam in 2016. So I'm just like, why is he Hmm. still here? 
So my, you know, housemate and me and a couple of other folks did like, she disrupted the presentation and we did a walkout and we figured out, and like, there's this whole big kind of contingent of trans women of color, mostly who were pushing to have his thing on the next day canceled. And so that ended up getting canceled. And so everyone was up in arms or many, a number of people were up in arms about that. And like, you're violating his free speech. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Like you're silencing him. You're no platforming him. Yeah. Conversion therapy isn't like a cute opinion. It's, it's not like a disagreement. Like, Hey, I don't like Taco Bell. I think it's bad. Hey, I think that trans kids should be put into therapy to be made. Like, that's not like a difference of opinion. That's not like a free. And there was actually someone who stood up while my housemate was doing the disruption and, and making all of these really great points around why he shouldn't be there. And they were like, I, you're violating his right to present and this thing. And I'm just thinking in my head, like, this is a private conference. Like, this is not the government. You're not free from sense from, from like audience comment on your shitty scholarship. At a con- so there was that whole mess. Um, and then there was the whole mess around Rebecca Tuvel. Um, oh, dear God. Yeah, that I didn't realize I would be the point person for a number <laughs> of the, the ire of turfs, which oh, I'm God. like totally willing to be for the most part. But then I sometimes forget that like I'm still a black woman and turfs hate black women almost as much as they oh, man, hate yeah. So that got kind of vicious. And like, there was a blog written about me that I found that I like cried all day when I read it. And like, yeah, it got, and all of these people again being like, but you're stifling academic free speech. You're like making vulnerable, a young academic. And I was like, hi, I'm a 24 year old grad student. That's a tenure mm-hmm. track professor. Yeah. But, um, but let me just do a real, real quick image search on her just to yeah but she's like just a young sweet woman i mean she's like girl basically like she can't be held responsible for i can't do it i'm sorry can't can't be held responsible for what um, she does as an adult but it it was it was so interesting the arguments that people were making that was about you know you can't violate someone's speech it's a witch hunt da 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 and i was like the thing that's really interesting is like guys i went through this and i gave my own sociological understanding of how she misused all of these concepts and not once in your defenses of her did you assert why her academic argument was not bad no one came from my argument i re- continued to 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 repost the thread and i was like hey I'm talking about why these two systems are not analogous. Other people have talked about why they're not analogous, and yet you're refusing to engage any of these things. And I feel like, I guess I just underestimated the willingness to be intellectually dishonest around all of this, because I can't imagine why anybody would try and actually defend the arguments that she made when she was saying things like, Black people should be flattered that someone would want to try to be black because structurally blackness is something that is down upon. <laughs> okay. That's, an argue, that's a real thing that she put in her paper. So I guess to back up a second, um, this is an essay about um, uh, Rachel Dolezal, right? A journal article in a leading feminist yes. philosophy journal. Like not just an essay. Yeah, no, true, true, <laughs> true, true. A peer-reviewed journal in the leading feminist philosophy Okay, go ahead. <laughs> but um, yeah, and basically, the jur- the article is um, uh, someone who saw Get Out and was like, "Oh yeah, that seems good." Like that seems good, basically, um, because that sounds like what it- I didn't read the article, but it it sounds like that's what it is. Like what I took one for the team and read it. Oh God. And outlined the many and highlighted in my PDF. I annotated and highlighted and then shared the highlights. I remember that. Yeah. And no one. And and it was interesting. You know, what's his name? Jesse Singal was like, it seems you didn't read it. And I was like, wow. Jesse Singal. I'm familiar. I was also like, I feel like maybe you're not in the place to talk about free speech, given how every opportunity you have, you like shit on trans teenagers. Um. I was like, I've read your work and well, I don't, cause you wrote the article and then he's literally CC'd me. And I was like, I don't really know what you think is about to happen. <laughs> what is, oh my God. Oh my God. Wild. And so, 
And there was this other, the this, this sociologist. I was so, I would spend so much time talking about like, this is going to be canonical. This argument is going to become canonical in gender studies. Like it's going to be something that was taught. I saw gender studies people being like, I'm going to teach this, right? That's not really argument. But there were so many people in, not in academia, talking about how I was overstating the impact. And I was like, what you don't understand is that in academia, when a bad argument is put forth, it takes so much longer for Mm -hmm. the better arguments to erase that because every time we have to assert a new point, we have to normalize all the other shitty points in our literature reviews. Yeah, so that's you're gonna people are gonna to have to acknowledge it now. Yeah, we're gonna take everything existing as discourse previously as part of our as like we as our rebuttal to the arguments, and so and it takes so much longer for insurgent knowledge to become acknowledged as being good. Yeah, I feel like there should be something called like Greer's Law, like bad papers drive out good or something, um, because it's so true. And, oh, man. Yeah, that was bad. What journal was that in? Hypatia. Jesus Christ. Yep. Oh, my God. Oh, and my God. And it was God. really interesting because Hypatia also publishes really incredible work, like the yeah. work of Christy Dotson around epistemic ignorance and injustice. Like, um, it's yeah. staggering to me, like, not like, like, even just like, I'm offended as a writer when <laughs> things like that get published because, like, the quality of the writing and the arguments they're making is like, like, I think. There are like I wish we we never had to talk about Rachel Dolezal ever again. Like that would be yeah. I mean I wish we ne- had never had to talk about her in the first place. But if you do have to, I feel like there are ways that you can talk about that stuff in ways that are are useful mm-hmm. and ways that aren't like I'm a child and these are two things. What if they're the same thing? What if these things are the same? I just picked Even up two objects. The sociologists of each thing are like hi. Just because something is a social construct does not mean that they operate exactly the same way, especially when they're like co-constituting constructs mm-hmm. and they enforce one another in different ways. And she is someone, so I was looking at her other work and her other work was really, really, it kind of unnerved me. So she did animal studies and she did gender studies. And one of the things she had written was about Sarki Bartman or quote unquote Venus Hottentot mm-hmm. and, and kind of within the realm of animal studies. And I was just like, mm. I don't, why are you using a black woman in your mm. research about animality when you don't understand how race works? Yeah, that <laughs> seems bad. I can't even imagine the levels of offensiveness. I think that might've been like her thesis or something. Yeah, that seems about right. <sighs> That's like, okay. And so you're like, and she continues to use the words like transgenderism, which makes me believe that she doesn't actually read trans feminist. Th- oh, it's clear. She doesn't read trans feminist theory. Not, not, not makes me believe it's clear. She doesn't read trans feminist theory. Um, especially when she like dead named Caitlyn Jenner in the very first paragraph, like it was just a mess. And instead of people kind of really interrogating why it was a mess, or why it might not be a mess. People were just like, you can't silence and censor someone. And I was like, do I have the institutional power to censor someone? Am I the president of her university? Or am I some <laughs> no one grad student with a Twitter uh, about why it's bad? You're, I'm, the ways that... If I have power, like, can someone tell me? Because I would like to I would to love use- to use that power <laughs> to not right. be completely economically insecure. And actually, this is something that, um, to bring up, uh, Sarah's book again um, mm-hmm. in in this but then also I think in her newer book um, she talks a lot about the ways that people who are in positions of power like one of the most classic defenses that they have is to claim that their power either doesn't exist or is natural and they, or they earned it or that like they're really weak and they're being victimized um, mm-hmm. and it's such a like this that victimization ploy of like Oh no, you're you're destroying this poor woman's career. Like you're gatekeeping her her like access to tenure and stuff. And it's like, well, to be a gatekeeper, you actually have to have a gate um that you right. have access to. So like a gatekeeper is someone who can like physically deny you coming in or deny you access to resources. Someone yelling at you is not or someone, you know, very like 
like calmly telling you that you're doing a bad thing isn't gatekeeping. Um, (laughs) so, um, we do not wish her the best. Um, we, we wish her, um, I wish to run into her at a conference. Oh, that would be nice. And I hope to attend a panel that she speaks on where I can be like, hi, you're talking about race. Do you remember this one time when you said that black people should be grateful for Rachel Dolezal because she's making blackness attractive to us? Can we talk about that, please? Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, I had to... uh, (laughs) I, yeah, I was sort of only peripherally following that stuff because it was just like, this is... this person is like just starting a garbage fire and like now everyone else has to stand around trying to put it out um yeah and they like ran away (laughs) great and everyone else has to put it out and then there are people who are like here's a giant fan you can't you can't Uh, put the fire out because she has the right to set nice things on fire yep um and god talk about like the ways that yeah talk about the ways i mean her the the funny i well sad and ironic thing about the whole thing is like her the behavior and the response to it is such a a simple illustration of the ways that race and gender intersect and co-constitute mm-hmm. because everyone saying that she is just like a sweet girl or like or just like you know like just a nice academic or whatever like yeah she's like a young white woman like a fucking obviously yeah. people like it's bullshit um yeah. and it's just like the way that you know, diversity. I mean, if we're looking at affirmative action has historically benefited, benefited cis hetero white women, but the ways that academia values so deeply white womanhood as this beacon of diversity, Mm. like women in POC, right? When you use that division, what what about those of us who are both, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the other thing about this conversation is like, um, there are black trans women like that's yeah that's, that's a thing that people yeah. just don't ever want to talk about or two black especially. trans women are like hey here's how this argument is bad and like everyone who is affected especially the people who are sitting at the intersections of of blackness and transness and womanhood you know are, are trying to be like hey this is why this is bad this is why it's bad to say women are women and trans women are tra-. like here's why it's bad. And everyone's like, well, you should give this person who was violating you and like taking violent liberties with your identity an opportunity to speak. And it was really interesting, the timing of the release of the study, which I think came out of the University of Kansas, that was like people who advocate for the right to free speech when it comes to controversial speech. It's basically the argument becomes an extension of their own opinion. So instead of saying, I agree with this, they can just be like, well, this person has the right to say it. And the study, I think, was talking about how, what was it? It, 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 was, a, it was a quanti- quantitative study, but it was just really interestingly talking about the correlation, the obvious correlation between bigoted views and particular assertions of free speech that have nothing to do with the government censoring you. Mm. And I was like, yeah, because free speech is your freedom for hate speech even if it's dressed up in all of this academic language about transgenderism and the parallels between transracialism and this, the co-constant, like, you know, whatever. <laughs> Dressing up a turd still makes it a, a turd. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> God, that was the worst. That was fucking worst. <laughs> and even now, like, we're, we, oh man, she's, she's just, she's just keeps coming up. She's just, can't get rid of her. Um, yeah. So I think I I think I, I mentioned this. Um, I'm getting better at mentioning it because for the first few weeks that we did it, I forgot to tell people and then I put them on the spot. But um, we only really have one segment on the show right now. And um, it doesn't have a cute theme song yet, although who knows? Maybe. Uh, maybe soon. Uh, the rest of the show is its own segment. Um, it's a, an undefinable amorphous mass um, and we don't put labels on it. In this part of the show, we do put a label on, and that label is recommendations, except it's not because um, uh, on a recent episode with my friend Michael DeForge, um, which hasn't actually gone up 
but I think we'll go up after on the Wednesday. It's a bonus episode, so it'll go up very soon after this. He decided that um, it would be very good to call this segment Get Wrecked, um, <laughs> which I immediately agreed to. Uh, it's retroactively always been known as that. Um, and this segment is where uh, uh, you recommend something to our listeners, and I do the same, and that thing can be anything. It can be a book. It can be a uh, music it can be a, a practice um it can be really anything and um i can start or you can start i'm i'm good either way you said a book a practice it could be anything it could be literally anything things that people have recommended have including have included like document like a documentary um taking long bike rides um <laughs> Uh, like a weird little thing that you put in your shower drain that catches your hair. Um, so like it, it could literally be anything. Um, but I, I can go first okay. if you want to. I think I have my thing. Okay, cool. Okay. So I have just started photography because I have this art fellowship that I'm doing and mm. all the time that I don't have. And um, I've been looking at all of these different photographers trying to figure out uh, the, for the project that I have in mind, what my influences are, what I kind of want to emulate. And I came across this renowned photographer named Samuel Foso. Mm -hmm. And he's from Cameroon. And he his practice is about self-portraiture. And sometimes it's like super queer and kind of like draggy looking. And other times he's dressing himself up as these kind of important figures in African and Afro diasporan history, but it's a really interesting use of the self as a subject um, to portray African history and African fashion sensibilities or moods or whatever. Um, so I would recommend the work of Samuel Foso. Fantastic. Um, well, I will. Um, I will find a link, or if there's um, an I'll send article or something, fantastic. Um, so I am going to recommend actually the book that I couldn't shut up about this whole episode um, because it's just blowing my mind. Uh, and that book is The Gentrification of the Mind by Sarah Shulman. Um, I, I'm a little late to the party on this one because it is about 10 years old, I think. And I think lately a lot more people are sort of like talking about um, her book, Conflict is Not Abuse. And I know a lot of people are... Uh, oh, are really person. Yeah, okay. I know that book has gotten some interesting reviews, um, some kind of polarizing. Uh, it's it's had a polarizing reception. I think I wrote a review of it um, on Goodreads that was sort of like, I think there's a lot to like there, but it's also um, in ways doesn't go far enough. And, and um, anyway, that book is its own thing. But <laughs> The Gentrification of the Mind is, I feel like it is essential reading for any queer in um, in the United States, um, oh. just because it is, um, just such, a, I, I feel like for, for maybe for young queers, especially, um, I feel like it is very easy for us to forget or to not know how things, how different things were, you know, 20, 30 or 40 years ago. Um, mm. which isn't to say that like things are great for everyone right now and in ways, um, but I, I think the ways that they are bad has changed. Um, yeah. and I think we don't appreciate the ways that in very recent memory, like being openly queer in public w exposed you to like violence and exclusion in ways that it still does in, in, in many parts of the country and for some, for some people, but not nearly to the same extent, I would say, um, mm -hmm. And uh, one of the reasons we don't know about that stuff is because a lot of the people who uh, who might have told us the stories um, were basically killed by the U.S. government um, mm. in its refusal to uh, deal with the AIDS crisis in any real kind of way um, for a very long time. So yeah. uh, I'm not actually done that book, but I'm already like ready to recommend it. It's also, um, I think that the end of the book is just like about the erasure of, of lesbian um, literature, um, which is also like a really important thing um, in my heart and to a lot of people who <laughs> listen to the show. So, um, so I would, yeah, I am going to recommend that book. Um, also, yeah, um, bonus recommendation, I guess, if you want, like, this is just on my mind because, um, I have, uh, someone, my neighbor in my building was singing 
Rent songs the other day and not just not just the Rent soundtrack, but like one specific song, which leads me to believe that maybe he is auditioning for Rent. Um, he was singing the song that isn't even a song. It's like one of the sing talky songs where he's like talking about how great it's going to be when they cancel this protest and and build like a weird condo or something um, because wow. he's, because he's the evil character. Um, Benny and um, Sarah also wrote a book called Stage Struck, which is basically about how Rent was stolen from one of her books, um, had the lesbian characters decentralized, had all these straight characters added, and um, was basically totally transformed by this guy who is essentially a tourist um, <sighs> and uh, and became this huge mega thing, and it was stolen from from a, uh, a queer woman so uh Ugh. also a good book really entertaining a lot of dirt but also just like a, talks about the ways that queer narratives are basically stolen repackaged and sold back to us so yeah um yeah well thank you so much for coming on this was it was really great um yeah thank you so much for having me it was a lot of fun yeah it was super cool uh, do you want to tell people where they might be able to find you online Okay, uh, you can find me tweeting away um, at Z-T-S-A-M-U-D-Z-I. Great. Um, and do you, I don't know, like, do you do, um, like, talks and, and workshops and those kinds of things? Or are you mainly sort of, like, is most of your time taken up by um, academic work right now? I'm open to talks and workshops and whatever. So if you want to pay me to do it. Yeah. Well, if people want to hire totally, you. I'm about it. Yeah. Right. Awesome. Well, um, you should <laughs> all hire Zoe. And um, <laughs> that is my one. If, if I get people paid on this show, then that is like fantastic. Um, all right. Well, um, I hope you have a fantastic weekend and I will talk to you later. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Bye. Secrets is hosted by Merrick Kay and produced and edited by me, Nick Bravo. Woodland Secrets is a part of Stay Mean, the world's only podcast network. We're entirely listener-supported. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron of Stay Mean at woodlandsecrets.co support. For as little as three bucks a month, you'll get access to a monthly newsletter and frequent bonus episodes of our shows. If you'd like to have a message read on the show, head to woodlandsecrets.co slash messages. You can help people find out about the show. Please mention us on Twitter. We're at Woodland Podcast and at Stay Mean Co. Or rate and review us in iTunes. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>